Okay, we are looking at 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's kind of a long chapter. I'm going to try and move through it fairly quickly. Um, and uh, I don't have it printed off in the bulletin because it was too big. So you'll have to sort of follow along in your Bible or just allow the, the, uh, the flow of the narrative as I read it to sort of picture it in your mind's eye. Um, okay, so police training over the last, uh, I'm not sure, maybe decade, maybe two decades, has really begun to emphasize de-escalation as a critical tool through which to serve and protect the public. And de-escalation training focuses on a number of verbal and nonverbal techniques that are aimed at de-escalating tense situations that are kind of precariously balanced on tipping over into uh, violence or destructive behavior. And the key to de-escalation training is that it is less authoritative, it's less controlling, um, it leans less on confronting and trying to sort of intimidate or power over, getting leverage over the person through uh, signs of power and domination and intimidation, and uh, offers a more gentle, calming, redirecting approach to diffuse a potentially explosive situation. And if you talk to a police officer or work with people uh, or know people who work on front lines of uh, social workers or ho hospital workers, then you'll know that, and you'll probably hear a story of how they could apply these de-escalation techniques and how in many situations they are the difference between you know, having a kind of happy ending where everybody is calm and then constructive, productive next steps can be made by everybody versus situations spiraling into chaos and violence and potentially even death and destruction. Now, if last week's chapter was a master class at learning about what it means to love your enemies from David, this week's chapter is a master class learning what it means to de-escalate a situation and to overcome evil with good by uh, this woman that we haven't met in the narrative yet. Her name is Abigail. David is tempted towards a course of action, and he actually sets his heart on it. And it's a course of action that is going to be really destructive to his reputation, his integrity, his honor as the future king. But then a woman named Abigail intervenes and prevents a pretty significant disaster and a, and a lot of bloodshed from occurring. So here's, here's kind of the story. 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel remembered and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. And then David moved down into the desert of Paran. Samuel hasn't been mentioned since uh, chapter 16. And yet his kind of shadow of influence looms large over the narrative. And we're kind of told really abruptly that now he dies. And this is someone who acted as kind of like a spiritual patron to David. And now David doesn't have that person in his life. And that's really significant because in this moment, the prospects for, for David are continuing to be uh, pretty, pretty harrowing. He's lost Samuel's influence and his mentorship, and he's still stuck in the wilderness. And there's this tenuous peace that he has struck with Saul. But we know from Saul's history that Saul's commitments to God and to others fluctuate pretty wildly, so it's very tenuous. Verse 2, a certain man in Moan who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy, and he had a thousand goats and a thousand sheep. That's like an ancient way of saying this guy was like 
rolling with bank. That's the way you counted wealth was through livestock. His name was Nabal, and his wife was Abigail. And she was intelligent and beautiful, but her husband was surly. And the Hebrew word there has connotations of hard or difficult or severe, um, stubborn, pig-headed. He was surly in all of his dealings, and he was a Calebite. When David was in the wilderness, he had heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. And there's kind of a tradition in Middle Eastern cultures, shearing sheep is the uh, kind of sheep uh, shepherding equivalent of taking in the harvest. So it was a time of festivities. So David and his men in the wilderness are like, oh, this rich guy's going to throw a party. Maybe we'd be able to show up and I could refresh some of my men. Because hospitality in Middle Eastern culture is very, very important as well. That wouldn't have been a big ask for David, even more so once we find out what he was doing for Nabal. He sends these men to go up and basically say, hey, give this blessing to Nabal and just say, you've heard it, sheep shearing time, and could we come up and be refreshed? And it says, please give, he sends the message to Nabal, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So he's not saying, he's not, asking, he's not, he's not doing a big ask. He's just saying, hey, if there's some extras, we'd love to participate and join in with you. And the reason why he's saying this isn't just because of arbitrary hospitality, it's because he's been protecting Nabal's flocks. So in the wilderness, um, David has formed this roaming band, and they sort of operate as a team of kind of good Samaritans. When you're in the wilderness, you're far away from city centers, which means you're far away from security and protection. You are kind of literally on your own. And bandits frequented the wilderness, and they would prey on travelers. They would plunder their defenses, or wild animals could attack, roaming uh, livestock. You might remember one of Jesus' most famous parables is about someone who gets beaten up in the wilderness and left for dead, and then a good Samaritan comes along and rescues that person. So David and his team have been providing this kind of perimeter protection for many people, but Nabal uh, being one of them. They're kind of like an unofficial neighborhood watch. I don't know if you guys remember. I remember these uh, signs in Kingston when I grew up walking home, that there were certain areas that were like, this is neighborhood watch. If you need a safe place to come, if anyone's bothering you or there's an emergency, this neighborhood has banded together and we're all kind of vigilant to make sure that there's kind of a perimeter of protection from not just crime, but any kind of emergency preparedness as well. And this is the work that David was doing. So when he's asking, in a sense, for some hospitality, there's really lots of reasons for Nabal to say, of course, absolutely. I mean, I'm massively wealthy, but I wouldn't have the wealth that I have without the hard work and sacrifices of your men. When David's men arrive, they give the, the message to Nabal, and he says, who's this David? Who's this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their master these days. That's a not-so-subtle slight that David is supposed to be working for Saul. So Nabal is kind of disparaging him and saying like, oh yeah, like, we got lots of little bandits and ne'er-do-wells and rabble-rousers who think they can just break with their employers and do whatever they want. Why should I take my bread and water, the meat that I've slaughtered for my shears, and give it to men from who knows where. These are a bunch of nobodies. That's not the response David is expecting. 
Nabal insults David. He compares him to a nobody, to a rebellious servant, someone who not, isn't deserving of hospitality. And that's a major, major slight in an honor-shame culture. And Nabal's narcissism and arrogance is on full display here, and he sends back an insult to this future king of Israel. He slams the door in David's face. Verse 12, David's men turned around and went back, and when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So David is reactive and defensive, and he is ticked. And he's like, suit up, we're going to war. One commentator said, it's interesting because the David that we're used to seeing as full of God in this moment is full of himself. And he's overtaken by his own pride. He's overtaken by his own sense of like, does this guy know who I am? Like, it was a courtesy of me to ask if he would host us. That was the courtesy. And this is the reply? Yeah, this guy needs to be taught a lesson. One of the servants of Nabal go to Abigail, Nabal's wife. And they're like, David sent messengers. She kind of lets them in on all of this. And he says, but you know what? There's no cause for this because David and his team have been helping us all this time. This is a totally unjustified rejection. And the, in verse 17, the servant says, think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and this whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. And then the next verse says, Abigail acted quickly. She takes a bunch of bread and wine and sheep and grain and cakes and you know, they're, they're having this banquet and she like takes part of the banquet and says, I'm going to bring this whole banquet to David and his men. I'm not going to wait for them to get here. I'm going to bring, I'm going to cater like an awesome banquet in the wilderness. Because if he gets here, it's going to be too late. She says, go ahead, I'll follow you. But she does this all without telling Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, David and his men were descending towards her. And she met with them. And the text says, David, when he's you know, cresting over the ravine and just coming into view, it says that he had just said to himself, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property and the wilderness, you know, making sure that nothing went missing, and he paid me back evil for evil. Or, sorry, evil for good. I was doing the good. What's my reward? Evil. May God deal with David, referring to himself in the third person, be it ever so severely if by morning I leave one male of all who belong to him alive. David's on a war path. He's not just about Nabal, he's going after everybody. Now again, think about the narrative. In the last chapter, David had the opportunity to strike out and deal the killing blow to Saul and end all kinds of trouble for him and his men, but he doesn't because he entrusts vengeance to God. But in this chapter, he says, yeah, I'm not waiting on God anymore. I'm taking vengeance into my own hands. We don't know why. We don't know all the reasons. I mean, the main reason was that David definitely saw Saul as anointed and blessed by God. And he didn't see Nabal as that. And even though Nabal was wealthy and, and prominent, maybe it was because David was not comfortable sort of punching up on the social hierarchy. I'm not going to kill Saul. He's the Lord's anointed. But this wealthy guy who I'm going to be in control of one day because I'm going to be king, 
That is kind of my jurisdiction. So I'll punch down. Not sure. But that's, to me, some of what is happening in David's heart. He doesn't see Nabal as worthy of entrusting to God's judgment. He's like, no, this is this, in this arena with this person, I'm judge, jury, and executioner. When Abigail saw David, she got off the donkey, bowed before him with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and she said, pardon my servant, my Lord, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak to you. Hear what I have to say. Don't pay any attention to my Lord. She's referring to her husband, to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. In Hebrew, the name Nabal means fool. She says, his, he's just like his name and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging you with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming you be like Nabal. She kind of inserts that he's already going to make for peace. Since you're not going to avenge, and I trust that you're going to hear this, may anybody who stands against you stand the way they stand against my husband. And I want you to receive this gift which your servant has brought to her Lord. And I want you to give it to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, referring to David. And um, because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. A little bit of sweet buttery talk here. David, you're amazing. <laughs> I can't imagine a better king. <laughs> Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies will be hurled away as from the pocket of a sling. Right? Well, that's kind of clever, referencing David's defeat of Goliath. Right? His reputation precedes him. When the Lord is fulfilled, she continues, when the Lord is fulfilled for my Lord, every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over all of Israel... My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God brought my, uh, when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. Now we need to insert kind of a dramatic pause moment here because Abigail is advocating not just for her own safety, but for the safety of the entire community that she's part of. David is going to go scorched earth. This is a tremendous act of courage. It's right up there with kind of Esther's defiance um, in, her, in, in the book that bears her name. This is Abigail's kind of Hail Mary. This is her one chance to prevent the foolish, harsh stupidity and stubbornness of her husband costing everyone their lives. So there's this moment of silence. She's brought the feast to David. She's kind of laced her language with expectancy that he's not going to carry out these plans of destruction. And then David says to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have, left alive, would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepts the peace offering. 
And he says to Abigail, go home in peace. I have heard your words and I've granted your request. So Abigail's words and posture, they turn David's heart. And maybe her striking beauty doesn't hurt either. That's just kind of like a little bonus. Now when I read that, one of the questions that comes to my mind, I think it's really important, is am I teachable? Like are you teachable in moments where you are set on a course of action? And are you teachable by people who you might be tempted to think are beneath you? Because some people are like, yeah, I'm teachable. I listen to these experts and these experts and these mentors, but they can't take, they can't listen, they can't hear from people who, they might not ever say it out loud, but people who aren't as smart as them, aren't as accomplished, aren't as successful. Abigail is, yes, the wife of Nabal, but she is a low-status person in a Middle Eastern culture as a woman. She's taking a huge risk. And yet David listens to her and really hears her. And that shows me the importance of listening to a diverse set of people who have different experiences. And there's been many times in my life, personally and professionally, when I've been locked into a certain course of action, it just seems so obvious this is what we have to do. And God has brought someone in to just interrupt that pattern, maybe for a moment, maybe not to redirect it completely, but just to soften it and say, hey, have you thought about this? Or maybe... I think this is a really bad idea. And some of those have been huge uh, workings of God's mercy in my life. And I'm thankful that God gave me some wisdom in the moment to say, maybe I should listen to this person. Maybe, despite my conviction that this is what we need to do, this is the way we have to go, this is the action I have to take, I should pause. Because other people are much better at identifying our blind spots than we are. And David is just consumed with vengeance at this point. But he's probably not thinking I'm consumed by vengeance. He's just thinking, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to enact justice. That's what, I'm not in the war path. I'm on the justice path. That's what I'm heading towards. And Abigail's like, no, you're heading towards reckless bloodshed. You're going to destroy your integrity and your honor as a leader. Are we open to the course corrections God's in, God intends for us, especially when it comes through the weak and lowly people of this world? Maybe our children, maybe a family member, maybe a person who serves beneath you at work, maybe someone in the church that you're like, yeah, I like them and stuff, but you wouldn't normally seek them out for advice. Having a teachable spirit and being open to God's correction is super, super important at every stage of life. So Abigail go, goes back to Nabal, he's, in the part, he's, he's feasting, he's drunk, she waits to the next day to tell him what, she, what he's done, and he basically has a heart attack or maybe a stroke because he's alive for 10 more days, and then in verse 38 it says, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. He's kind of overcome, he's kind of this, you kind of get this picture that he's kind of this calcified, hardened person, and what he would see as his wife's uh, sort of like insurrection against him and sort of like a dishonoring him by being proactive and doing this without his consent is like the last hardening thing and then he just kind of sh- calcifies on the inside and, cra- and just um, hardens up and breaks. And then when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, oh, praise the Lord, the one who upholds my cause against Nabal. David's, uh, David's reminded, oh, God will exact his revenge and his timing. I didn't need to try and 
take this into my own hands. David says, Nabal did treat me with contempt, but God has delivered me. He kept his servant from doing wrong, and he brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. I'm going to skip down to verse 44 for a sec. The reason is, is because Saul had retracted David's first wife, Michael, because Saul had used Michael basically as a trap to lead David astray. When he found out that it wasn't working, he kind of like married her off to someone else. So David calls for Abigail and says, I want you to be my wife. She bows before him and says, I'm your servant. I'm ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. And Abigail got a donkey and attended her five female servants. She went with David's messengers and she became his wife. David also married Ahoyam of Jezreel and they were both his wives. And then that postscript of Saul had given his first wife, Michael, to another person. Okay, so how do we apply a text like this? Well, there's a few different ways that I could go, um, but I think the text puts something particular in front of us. I could say this text definitely, and in a very subtle way, very sophisticated way actually, shows us the importance of having a spiritual mentor. I don't think it's a coincidence that the first major temptation David faces in his life comes after Samuel has died. That's how the chapter starts. And then maybe it's a mixture of grief. Maybe it's a mixture of not having Samuel's steadying hand or just knowing that Samuel's there. He could visit him and get advice about stuff. Not having that, David begins to spiral into self-destructive behavior really, really quickly. And so we could use this text in a pretty direct way and say, like, spiritual mentors matter. We need people in our life, people uh, who provide a steadying hand and are kind of a calm presence, a non-anxious presence in the storms of life because they've been there, they've done that, they've walked with God through all kinds of things. And so do we have a spiritual mentor in our lives? Are we open to our need at any stage of life to have someone who's gone before us that we're learning from, we're learning, learning with, we're allowing them to influence us? You could also use this passage to reemphasize the biblical principle that God can't be mocked. That a person reaps what they sow. That's Galatians 6, 7. Nabal is this figure that he's wealthy and by all accounts, like he's just a total jerk and yet he's kind of getting away with it. He's flourishing. He's rich, he's wealthy. But we also see that he's not wealthy in the things that matter. He has all this status and this power, but he's a fool. And people around him know he's a fool. His wife doesn't respect him. She knows that he's a fool. And yet, some might have looked at his life and say, wow, he's, he's, he has it all. And yet, all of the inward chaos and all of the hard-heartedness and the stubbornness, ultimately, David says, comes down on his head. And that's a good reminder that like, we never really get away with things in life. And there are some people who approach God like they can kind of game the system. I'm going to live this way over here without reference to honoring God or whatever. But I go to church on Sunday. I give a certain amount. I say I'm sorry once in a while. Like, I figured it out. I've got this little gaming the system. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was a teenager, and now I just live my life, do whatever I want, and then I'll go to heaven one day. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. 
And if, Paul says, you reap to the flesh, meaning your own self-serving desires, that's what you will reap. And if you reap to the Spirit, if you reap to God's priorities and His honor, you will reap life. And so there's a warning here, and it's also a promise that when we follow God sincerely, our lives don't become necessarily easy in every way, but there is a harvest of life and goodness. But if we harden ourselves against God and harden ourselves against people, we might prosper from the outside looking in for a season of our lives, but the, eventually we'll, we'll pull the, the roof in on our heads. God will not allow us to get away with trying to game the system, exploit people, mistreat people, and live with aggressive indifference or rejection towards him. The other thing you could use this passage to talk about is how, again, Abigail is this amazing example of how to overcome evil with good. Right? She, at great risk to herself, um, offers hospitality to David. Much like David goes on the offensive to try and reconcile with Saul in the last chapter, we see Abigail doing that to David. She's not waiting for him to show up. She's going out there and saying, listen, if there's any way that we can make peace and we can avert disaster, let's do that. Here, here's my gift. Here's, and she actually uses her um, wealth and forwards that as a way to bless David and his men. She, she knows the proverb, uh, Proverb 15, that says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And so she knows how to de-escalate this situation. Jesus speaks about using wealth the way that Abigail does. That instead of saying, well, I could maybe just go up myself, she's like, no, I'm going to show, I'm going to do a tremendous show of generosity towards my enemy coming to destroy our community. Jesus said, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And that's I mean, it might strike us as strange, but it's a very practical teaching of Jesus. It's part of the wealth that you have is there to bless your enemies with. So use it. Because it's really hard to hate someone who's not just trying to reconcile, trying to make peace, trying to reinforce those with actions, but reinforcing that with by investing in that person. And so we could kind of do an exercise where we thought, where am I maybe being invited by God in some of these um, places of relational tension in my marriage, in my family, friendships, at work. Um, How could I use some of the wealth, some of the material resources that I have to bless, to go above and beyond, go the extra mile and make kind of like a peace offering? But I want us to see, to me, the most important part of this passage. You have to kind of pull back a bit and look at it from 30,000 feet. And I think the most important part of this passage is that we're watching David be saved from self-destruction. I want you to see that as this chapter unfolds, David places himself on the path to self-destruction. And it's only through Abigail's gentle and gracious intervention that he is saved from himself. He's a lost soul. He's consumed by self-interest by pride, by a perverted sense of justice that has now morphed into violence and retribution. And he's saved by a gentle word and a display of gracious hospitality. If you saw David and his men marching toward Nabal's settlement, 
and someone were to ask you, what's it going to take to stop these guys? I don't know if you would have said a plea from a woman who's invisible to her husband and some good food. This is a picture, and we need to read it as our need for God. We're like the David in this story who finds himself suddenly overcome by sinful impulses and self-interest and self-destructive pathways. The road he sets himself on is one of bloodshed and blood guilt, but Abigail, who's actually the Christ figure in the story, she intervenes, and she reminds David who he is, and she gently redirects him towards his God-given purpose. And like David, you and I need that same salvation in our lives. We often need salvation from ourselves, from our own plans, from our own sense of like, I know exactly what needs to happen in this situation, and I'm going to pursue it no matter what. We need salvation from the places that we would end up if we were allowed to just pursue what seems right in our own eyes. There's a line in the hymn that we're going to close to sing, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and it goes like this. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs, of loudest praise. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to save my soul from danger, interposed his precious blood. That's the gospel story in a nutshell. We rejected God and said, we'll handle things from here, thank you very much. And we set ourselves on a collision course with sin and death and hell and destruction. And Jesus intervened. And instead of forcing us, he brought gifts and hospitality and a gentle word. Come follow me. You don't have to go down this path anymore. It's a broad path. A lot of people go down that path. There's another path open to you now. It's narrow. But if you seek it, you will find it, and it will lead to eternal life. And that path leads to me. Jesus can save you from the path of self-destruction and self-sabotage. And he is seeking you. He is inviting you. He is pleading with you as Abigail pleaded with David. Don't go down that road. Do not go down that road. However justified you feel like you are in going down that road, however tempting it is, however much pleasure you think lies at the end of that road, do not go down that road. Rethink And just like David, we have to humble ourselves and listen to that still small voice, that prompting of the Spirit, and say, am I going to ignore that and just be literally hell-bent on my way? Or do I have the wisdom to pause and say, maybe I'm being rescued and saved in this moment, and this is a turning point in my life. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion. Do not harden your hearts as Nabal did. Keep a teachable spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to redirect you to right paths. Let's pray.